welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Peter Rosher, Global Head of Reed Smith's international arbitration practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our latest edition of Arbitral Insights, our podcast series where we interview some of the most influential and inspirational people in the world of international arbitration and the law. And today I'm very excited to be able to welcome Anthony White, QC of Matrix Chambers. Hello, Anthony. Hi, Gautam. For those of you who don't know Anthony, I will just give you a little summary of him. Anthony is one of the members, one of the founding members at Matrix Chambers in London. He is one of the most highly rated senior counsel in this country, has a very broad practice, a very international practice. He has an incredibly diverse practice too. One of his big specialisms is international arbitration, which we'll talk about in the course of this podcast. But he's also very eminent and very highly rated in a number of other fields, which include commercial law, employment law, and very importantly, media and information law, where he's been involved in a number of very, very interesting cases, which we may well come to, Anthony, in the course of this podcast, involving some very well-known public figures. But it's really great to have you here with us today, Anthony, and I'm looking forward to this discussion with you. I've known you for many, many years. I've had the benefit of working with you for many, many years too on several cases, but I've never had a chance to pin you down in a podcast. So I'm looking forward to this discussion. So Anthony, let's start at the very beginning. Why did you choose to become a lawyer? That's back in the mists of time. I was the first in my family to go to university and I wasn't initially going to be a lawyer at all. I did science as a day level, and I was determined to try and get into Cambridge, largely because I was told at school that I probably wouldn't be able to. I mean, that made me <laughs> rather determined. I love it. So on a second application, having been um, rebuffed the first time, I got a place to read natural sciences. But that was in the heady days of the late 70s and the punk rock movement, which I was very interested in, was in its infancy. And I thought I wanted to spend my time at university, concerts and parties. And um, I thought natural sciences looked rather hard work. You had to go to the lab every morning. And although I was interested in sciences, I thought that looked a bit demanding. So I cast around for what I could do instead. And one of the options with my A-levels was law. And I also thought, and slightly more nobly, that it might be a better broad social education than natural sciences. And that proved to be absolutely right. So I made one of the best decisions I've ever made, which was to jump from natural sciences into law, which I found stimulating from the outset and also gave me the uh, free time that I uh, wanted as a student. Well, I look forward to probing you on that free time a little later in this podcast and asking you about your punk rock <laughs> music taste, which I did know about, but I'm going to ask you a little bit more about that, I promise you. So having made the jump from natural sciences to the law, I guess the next thing is, when did you decide that you wanted to be a barrister? Fairly early on, I think I was, a, certainly my father would have said that I was a very argumentative teenager. And I thought the 
cut and thrust of debate in court would suit me. And I also thought it would be slightly more enjoyable to be self-employed. In those days, I hadn't heard of the figure known as the barrister's clerk when I began at the bar. And I thought that as a barrister, you were in charge of your time. Not quite so in those days. Those reasons made me drift more towards the bar than the solicitor's side. And, you know, Anthony, I don't want to embarrass you, but, you know, you've had an incredibly stellar career and you're at the top of your game. And I know you inspire and you set the bar for so many people. But take us back to when you were a young lawyer and you were developing. Who were some of the lawyers, colleagues, other barristers who really inspired you and who acted as mentors to you and were able to shape at least in part what you now stand for? Well, I've been unbelievably fortunate, Gotham. I've had the encouragement and nurturing of some fantastically capable and inspiring lawyers. My tutor at Clare College in Cambridge, Elizabeth Freeman, was a friend of a man who sadly died recently, a judge at the Mayor and City of London's County Court till he retired called Bill Bertels. And he was a practitioner at Cloisters and the the well-known and left-leaning chambers. Liz introduced me to Bill Bertels, who kindly took me on as a pupil. There was no transparency in those days. You were just put in touch with people who might give you a pupilage. And he was both politically sympathetic. He was a councillor at Camden at the time and very interested in the intersect between law and politics. Had a a great practice in all sorts of interesting left-leaning areas. And he really nurtured my interest at the bar and was extremely kind to me. Took me to the Sizewell inquiry where he was acting for the GLC. and But he was also a bon viveur and made life generally as a people very pleasant. And so that was stimulating. But perhaps critically, he introduced me to the man who did become a real mentor to me, who Stephen Sedley, who was then a junior tenant at Cloisters with probably the strongest public law practice at the bar and I was just inspired by the work he did and the path he was cutting and I stayed at Cloisters. I had a pupillage at 11KBW which Patrick Elias had very kindly helped organise for me which I could have gone to but I chose to stay at Cloisters and start my practice there. He remained an inspiration till he went on the bench and remains a good friend. When I left to set up or help set up Matrix, I was surrounded by lawyers of the greatest calibre, the highest calibre, and it's almost invidious to pick anybody out, but one person who I feared and admired, feared for his intellectual rigour and admired hugely for his trailblazing practice was Rabinder Singh, who's now in the Court of Appeal, just a a fantastically able lawyer. So I, I've been plodding along in the slipstream of people like that all my career, just the most able, the most impressive people who've shown great kindness and encouragement. Well, you know, some would differ that you've been plodding along, but uh, the names you mention are all incredible ones. Stephen Sedley was, of course, a Court of Appeal judge, and Rabinda Singh is a current Court of Appeal judge. And just talking about Matrix, you know, when you and a number of others set up Matrix in 2000. I think it was 2000, wasn't it, Anthony? 
1999 was the very the very beginning, yes. Yeah. Just tell us a little bit about what were the founding principles of Matrix? Why did that group of people at that time choose to set up Matrix? And what was the culture that they particularly wanted to imbibe at Matrix? Well, the, the early discussions, and I, I wasn't part of the very earliest discussions, although I came in fairly soon after they had begun. They recognized a number of things. One was the imminent arrival of the Human Rights Act 1998 and the way that some far-sighted individuals realized that that would permeate throughout the law. It wouldn't just affect what everyone would recognize as a human rights case, but would influence the structure of the law through Article 6 and the reporting of it through Article 10 and every aspect of family and private life through Article 8. And they realized that it was going to just spread interstitially through the law. A second strand was internationalism. People felt more interested in developing an international perspective and having practices that weren't just steady incremental increase in quality in the English courts, but involved international facets. And and I think the third thing was the interaction between academics and practitioners that always been what in some chambers were called door tenants. We had door tenants at cloisters, including some very able ones, but they didn't play a central role in chambers. And we wanted the academics, and we had the most stellar academics still do, to play a, a more central role in the development of chambers and its strategic ambitions. And, and those three points caught the zeitgeist and attracted to Matrix some people, most of whom had already established reputations and practices. And it was just like a firework. It just, we lit the blue touch paper and it just took off. Thank you, Anthony. One of the things that I mentioned in the introduction is you have such an incredibly diverse practice. And I certainly you know, have always marveled at how you have been able to maintain such a broad practice. And we'll turn to international arbitration in a short while, because that's one of the areas where you have huge expertise and huge experience. But I really do often think, and I've spoken to you about this when we've not been doing a podcast together like this, <laughs> that you do have an incredibly broad practice. I mean, I I mentioned in the introduction that you specialize in a number of areas of commercial law, which itself is a broad area. You have for many years specialized in employment law, public law, and also in the last decade in particular, if not more, a huge reputation in media and information law. And I just wonder how you managed to do it all, because (laughs) there's so many areas there. And you obviously love the variety. That goes without saying, that's obvious. And you love the challenge, the rigor, the stimulation of doing cases in a a broad number of areas. But just tell us a little bit about, and don't be self-effacing here, how you're able to manage just to stay on top of all those areas of law so strongly. Well, I don't know that I do. You're very kind. But I I do relish the diversity of my practice. And I... uh... Matrix has given me the opportunity to diversify 
I started off doing crime at Cloisters. That's what we all did and um, loved that for a few years. There's nothing quite as exciting as doing a jury trial. And then I moved into civil knockabout work and then gradually moved into commercial work and also luckily stumbled across the Data Protection Act and wouldn't to many people have seemed good fortune at the time, but it's turned out to be very fortunate. And then shifting to Matrix, a good friend of mine, Heather Rogers, was kind enough to put me forward for a case involving the supermodel Naomi Campbell. And that was the start of a a long interest in privacy and data protection is the close cousin of privacy. And so those two strands developed. The internationalism I mentioned at Matrix a moment ago encouraged me to broaden my commercial work, and in particular, Professor Philippe Sands was a, a strong influence on the internationalization of my practice. And you yourself, sir, were there at the time bringing opportunities of expanded commercial horizons, and I drifted without great strategy into international commercial arbitration, which I love and which I've been very fortunate to practice in. And and it's in recent years, uh, my practice has shifted between those points. And as you say, the last decade or so, I've acted frequently for the tech companies in big privacy and data protection disputes. And those have been very stimulating and very high profile. And they've been a good counterpoint to the solid stream of commercial work that I've also enjoyed. Great fortune, really, in in those areas for me. Thank you, Anthony. And, And just turning to international arbitration, in over 20 years that I've known you and worked with you, you've been involved in lots of international arbitration cases. And, you know, one of the things that I always find of interest to ask people like yourself is, how can we make the arbitration process better? You know, as I know, that arbitration is now very widely used. There are many different sets of rules. There is a specialist bar that deals with arbitration. There are specialist law firms and other providers in the world of arbitration. And I also want to pick on this in the sense of, I know you also sit as an arbitrator. So if you could just share with us some of your thoughts about how the arbitration process could be improved for the people who use it, because that's a constantly evolving question. It's a very important question, and I'd be really interested in your thoughts on that. I'm a great fan of the international arbitration system and its participants. I think it attracts extremely able um, people to both sit on arbitral panels and provide the advocacy, and it resolves disputes, particularly international disputes, very effectively. But I I do think there are a couple of areas that from time to time I've found frustrating in international arbitration and which I think could be improved. And to some extent, the rule makers are busy improving these areas. One is the area of summary disposal, summary procedures. Quite often in my court practice, I find important points of law are decided and disposed of early in cases. And indeed, the whole case can turn around important points of law, which go to the Court of Appeal or Supreme Court. And growing up in international arbitration, I've found there to be a limited scope for summary procedures, um, 
summary judgment and similar uh, disposal. Some sets of rules, as we know, are moving towards addressing that, but it still remains in its infancy compared with the way in which a strategy in court in an appropriate case can lead to a focus on an issue which can be dispositive and efficient. The second area I found frustrating, and indeed in some of our cases together, Gotham, has been joinder. Arbitration sometimes seems to me to be slightly blinkered in that it's difficult to bring before a single tribunal all of the related facets of a dispute, and you sometimes get separate arbitrations with overlapping facts before separate tribunals, which I think can be conducive to a risk of different outcomes and inconsistent results. Those are the two things that I I think thought could be given to. And Anthony, what's your sense about how the disclosure process works in arbitration. I think you and I know how the court process works when we talk about disclosure of documents. But in arbitration, because arbitration often is building a bridge between common law and civil law traditions, the disclosure process can be a little bit cumbersome. It can be a bit heavy and not always as clear-cut as it would be in litigation. Now, a big part of that is down to the, how arbitration has evolved. You know, it's not a national system in that sense. But, you know, any thoughts on that, any experiences on that as to how the disclosure process works in arbitration? I, I, you're right to bring that up. I, I have, from time to time, been a bit frustrated by the inconsistencies in the rigour of disclosure in international arbitration. One of the reasons why... England is such a centre for commercial dispute resolution in the courts is the rigour of its disclosure rules and the experience of international litigants that disclosure in English court proceedings is fair and rigorous and exacting. Not everyone enjoys that, but it's conducive to the just outcome. In, In arbitration, disclosure often seems to me to depend upon the energy and commitment of the arbitrators at an early stage when they aren't always as focused on the case which isn't imminently about to move to trial uh, as they might be. And I think too often the disclosure is slightly haphazard. The rigour depends upon the party's formulation of the issues, the arbitrator's intervention to prune them and focus them. When it's good, it's very good, but I, I think it can be patchy. Thank you, Anthony. And, and you know, just um, you know, one last thing before we move on to a slightly different topic. I mentioned a little earlier that you also sit as an arbitrator. Now, you're a very seasoned advocate. You know, tell us about, and this might be a little bit of a difficult question, it's not meant to be, how do you see cases when you're sitting as an arbitrator and you're the one being addressed, you're the one hearing the submissions. How has your experience of sitting as an arbitrator been at least partly affected by your long-standing experience as an advocate? And are there things that you particularly like when someone's making submissions to you? Yeah, brevity. I, I, I think 
what you learn sitting on the other side of the table is how important the written formulation of the arguments is and how you mustn't waste your oral opportunities by just saying the same thing, but you must be concise in what you say. And the, the other thing, perhaps just as an insight, is I'm often surprised by how people waste their reply opportunity. Advocates are too often see advocacy as a two-stage process, the opening argument and the response. I think the reply is important in a high proportion of cases. Reply submissions are important, and they're often not used as fully as I think they could be. A slightly different topic, but one that I know is very important to many, many of us, including yourself, and that's how we build a better culture of diversity, equality and inclusion in the law and in arbitration. And just be interested in some of your thoughts as to how we can improve that, because it's something that, you know, there's been a lot of progress on that over the last number of years, but there's still a fair way to go. And I'd be interested in your thoughts on that, please. Yes, I mean, I one of the most important and pressing issues of the modern world, isn't it? And when I started at the bar, it was, as my daughters would put it, pale, stale and male. who were just old white men in senior positions. We do seem to have made a lot of progress, and Matrix has been at the forefront of this, in gender inclusion. The gender balance at the bar has improved dramatically in the time that I've been in practice. And, and I think a key to that is role models. I think the appointment of the highest caliber of women judges in my time at the bar, Brenda Hale, Mary Arden, Elizabeth Gloucester, have just provided a clear signal of the falling of the wall between men and women in legal practice. But we've not been as successful in relation to race. And it's a matter of regret at Matrix that we haven't been able to bring forward strong, successful practitioners as easily for to achieve racial diversity as we have to achieve gender diversity or gender inclusivity. And I think the same needs to happen. You need role models. It is happening, I think, but at a slower pace. I think Rabinder Singh, who I mentioned earlier, um, Lord Justice Rabinder Singh, is a fantastically important role model in the judiciary. Pushpinder Saini, a, a first instance judge of, again, the highest calibre, is another good role model. But progress has been slower and we need to be conscious of that. We need to think all the time about inclusivity in teams so that people get opportunities to participate in important cases, both in arbitration and in the court system. Yeah, and you know, uh, yeah, yeah, it's interesting that, uh, you know, these role models, as you say, are very important. And it's wonderful that we've got Lord Justice Rabinda Singh, we've got Mr. Justice Saini, we've got Mr. Justice Chowdhury, also on the High Court bench. But uh, one of the things we're lacking uh, are female judges from an ethnic background and hopefully something will happen positively in that respect before too long but uh, no thank you for sharing those thoughts Anthony. So 
just in terms of some, I always in these podcasts, apart from focusing on some of the more sort of serious, cerebral, professional issues that we grapple with, I also like exploring some of the more lighthearted areas with our podcast guests. And you are no exception, Anthony. I mean, indeed, I, I'd like to think that uh, um, given how long I've been privileged to know and work with you, I've asked you a few questions over the years, but I probably haven't asked you some of the ones I'm going to ask you now. <laughs> so uh, tell us this. You've got an incredibly rich and a diverse practice. You've got a very international practice. Have there been any particularly memorable jurisdictions outside of England where you've attended hearings or attended meetings and why? Well, I, I have been very fortunate in practicing outside England from time to time, and particularly in Silk. Um, very happy times in Gibraltar where I have been admitted for cases from time to time with valued colleagues enjoying not only the court hearings there, but also the restaurants and the beaches accessible <laughs> from um, that part of the world. I've had the great pleasure of being in Trinidad during Carnival, <laughs> which, as, as a work trip goes, is about as good as it gets. And and you and I, sir, have had the great pleasure of doing the first sub-Saharan ICC arbitration, which gave us a fortnight in Dar, followed by a, a, a rare trip up Mount Kilimanjaro, and doesn't get any better than that, does it? Now, I've had great pleasure from the roving practice I've enjoyed in Silk. I said I'd revisit this, and I'm going to revisit it. You mentioned punk rock music <laughs> in, in in your opening comment. So do you still love punk rock music? Um, and or what other areas and bands and singers and other sorts of music do you enjoy? I'm not going to answer that question. I'm going to answer a different one. I'm going to bring together. <laughs> well, that's your prerogative, Anthony. <laughs> bring together my interest in the music of that era with a case I enjoyed doing in practice. So you you may know that I acted for Associated Newspapers when they were sued by Paul Weller on behalf yes. of his children. Mm-hmm. And Paul Weller was an absolute favourite of mine in the late 70s and early 80s. And after I'd finished cross-examining him and we happened to be leaving court at the same moment, I did say to him in the vestibule that his music had mattered a huge amount to me as a a young man. And um, even though I'd just been cross-examining him, I still was a great admirer of his. And that that brought together rather nicely two (laughs) strands of my life. Well, I've got to tell you, as you know, I've got a very eclectic music taste and I still love to do a bit of DJing and everything. But... uh, Paul Weller, and if you look back to the jam, the Style Council, and even his solo work, an incredibly prolific songwriter, producer, and singer. And I mean, it's 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 hard to pick a, a Paul Weller song that is, that isn't a good one. But I can tell you, and I sort of hark back, and I'm I'm meant to be asking you the questions, but I can't resist <laughs> no, this. <laughs> I remember as a young teenager, a town called Malice mm-hmm. coming on the radio. And I was just blown away by it. And then I just wondered, who is this group? And I worked out it was the jam. And then I then got into Eaton Rifles, Going Underground and all that stuff, Mm. which Paul, which, well, the jam are very famous for. And then how the, the soul of Paul Weller then came into being, you know, he became a soulful singer, the style council and then all of his solo material is very soulful. 
And, you know, if, if, if you like, in some of these more modern music with the style counts, the one song that I particularly love is Shout to the Top. I just think that's just a brilliant song. It's very well written, very well produced, very well put together. So, um, you know, Paul, so Paul Weller, the mod father, as some would call him, <laughs> is certainly an icon with me as well. And are there any films, Anthony, that you particularly love? And if you do get a spare couple of hours now and again, you sort of find a reason to sort of put on a DVD or watch on well, I know you haven't got a TV, so I was hesitating <laughs> on on your iPad or a laptop. Well, we we have a projector, and I, I'm a great. In fact, I'm a bit of a cinephile, and we we do watch a lot of films. I'm particularly fond of American and French film noir. Probably something like Double Indemnity would be a favourite film of mine, and but but I also like. French film noir, um, such a pretty little beach, and the the Melville films. I'm fond of fond of anything with Alain Delon in, and so yes, I, I've pretty broad taste. I'm I'm very keen on a current Italian director maker of things like The Great Beauty and The Hand of God, which I thought you mm-hmm. might like the recent film about Maradona. And, yeah, but yes, films are a, a source of joy to me. I, I'm constantly I'm interested in films in more normal social times I'm a great attender of the BFI but cinema's not been as, as much a part of life in recent years no regrettably so and I've got one last question that I'll ask you in a moment but the hand of God film just reminds me of you know of course it's all about the infamous Maradona and everything else but uh, I remember the England manager at the time of the infamous hand of God in Mexico 86 was Bobby Robson. And when he was asked in an interview sometime afterwards, and, and I think it was a South American reporter said, oh, that was the hand of God, wasn't it? And he said, no, it was the hand of a rascal. <laughs> I, I, I just remember Bobby Robson, the late, great Bobby Robson, made that <laughs> comment about Maradona and the hand of God. One last question, Anthony. I absolutely love this podcast. And I could, you know, I could talk to you for another hour, but I'm not going to because we've got to be respectful of time. I know that you're also a great lover of the theatre and you enjoy watching live performances. Are there any stage actors, male and female, that you're particularly fond of? Yes. I mean, I, I'm... Let me think... I'd, People I've seen recently who I've been struck again by how good they are. Rifians um, was a male actor, Zoe Wanamaker. Saw Zoe Wanamaker in something last year. I thought she was absolutely excellent. Yes, I mean, I'm always delighted to go to the theatre and I like the intimacy of the stage. And again, look forward to that getting back more to normal. Absolutely. We all long for that. Well, Anthony, thank you very, very much for uh, taking time out from your busy schedule to do this podcast with me. It's been an absolute pleasure and privilege. And I don't say that lightly, because although I'm I'm very honoured to call you a friend, I'm even more honoured to call you a colleague that I've worked with and I much admire. So thank you very much for taking this time out. And I look forward to seeing you in person before too long, Anthony. In, indeed. Well, thank you. My pleasure was all mine. Always good to see you. Bye, good. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email arbitralinsights at reedsmith.com. 
to learn about the Reedsmith Arbitration Pricing Calculator, a first-of-its-kind mobile app that forecasts the cost of arbitration around the world, search Arbitration Pricing Calculator on reedsmith.com or download for free through the Apple and Google Play app stores. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at Reedsmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.